Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Welcome to LA Opera's Connects program for the evening, a return to Venusburg. Tonight, we will explore the universe, literally, during this wide-ranging conversation with music featuring astronomer Dr. Laura Danley, curator of the Griffith Observatory. Together with LA Opera's music director, James Conlon, they will examine the power and influence of Venus, the goddess and star of love, over Tannhäuser. Thank you so very much. As you know well, and many of my friends as well, I spend my life at the LA Opera, and it's such a delight to be able to be with you and to talk about the two things I love the most, music and astronomy and how they are combined. Now, it doesn't seem like a very natural tie. And in fact, I did find myself saying to friends things like, oh, well, you know, we, we kind of made a word, Venus, Venusburg, we'll, we'll make that work. We can figure something out. But I had the great delight while preparing for tonight to really get to explore some of the deeper connections. And I look forward to sharing some of those with you tonight. So if you've looked to the sky, you might have noticed this extraordinarily bright planet. Venus is, and might be one of the few things you know about it, the third brightest thing in the sky after the sun, the moon, and then Venus. Venus is the brightest planet, the, the brightest point of light in the sky that you can see. And a lot of times we get calls at the observatory, what's that UFO? Because when it's low in the west, it looks like it's something coming into land, but it's not. It is another world, it's a planet, and we have come to understand its ways. Uh, you may not have realized that you only see it either around sunset or around sunrise. You don't see it in the middle of the night and you don't see it cross across the sky like the other planets. And that is one of its secrets that I hope to go into a little bit more. You can see it tonight, or I should say tomorrow morning before dawn, if you get up early, if you're the early riser sort and it's still dark, look to the east where the sun will rise. Because again, Venus is always near the sun. I'll come back to that. And you should see the beautiful, bright, brilliant, impossible to miss shot of Venus. So what does that bright light in the sky have to do with these beautiful babes, these beautiful goddess of love? And why do we associate that with Venus? Well, that's an excellent question. And a lot of people try to figure that out. And we don't really know precisely what the answer is. But we do know that that bright light has been associated with Venus throughout cultures and for millennia. So it's a very common thing across cultures to associate that bright planet with Venus, the goddess, the goddess of love. And of course, that's where we get our notion of Venus of love and in particular carnal love. But that's not the only kind of love, of course, that Venus represents. Venus represents all sorts of love, all types of love. And we'll come back to that as well. Now, of course, Venus is a planet. I mentioned that before. And sometimes we refer to that as Earth's twin because they're very, very similar to one another. Um, they're about the same size and they both orbit the sun. Venus is closer in than Earth, but they both orbit the sun in this perfect distance from the sun that we like to refer to as the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone, which means it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right for life. That's the zone around our sun where water should be liquid on the surface and liquid water is essential for life. So that's the definition of this habitable zone, but clearly something happened and something went awry in the case of Venus. As I mentioned, very similar, both in the habitable zone, 
Venus is closer to the sun, but you know, their sizes and masses and the surface gravity are, are very similar. Absent all other forces standing on the surface of Venus, it would feel almost like standing on the surface of Earth. But that is indeed where things go apart. The surface temperature of Venus is almost 900 degrees, and it's about 90 times more atmospheric pressure under all of that thick atmosphere. So in fact, it's a very, very hostile, hostile environment. Nothing like the, the gorgeous and beautiful Earth that we enjoy. So we're not looking for any civilizations there. In addition to being ridiculously hot and high pressure, it's also got an atmosphere made largely of sulfuric acid. So if you were to be there, you would probably melt and be destroyed by acid and, and um, uh, crushed. Yeah. So we do know that beneath the cloud tops, there is a rocky world, much like Earth. And there's a lot of history in this. You could spend a half hour talking or more just about the geology of Venus. Obviously, something happened. Venus stayed hotter longer and had a lot of volcanism. And the more volcanoes that gave gases like carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the thicker the atmosphere became, the more it heated up. And finally, all of the water boiled away and was left with nothing but a desiccated, hot planet where all of that went into the atmosphere and the pressure is so enormous that you can't actually go enjoy the day there. Venus is not really the place uh, where you think you would find life. There are signs that perhaps there could be life on Venus. Without going into too much detail, there was a chemical compound found in the atmosphere of Venus that on Earth is only created by life. So people think, well, that's a pretty, pretty interesting smoking gun there. Perhaps there might be some kind of biotic process going on in the cloud tops, in the atmosphere of Venus, and maybe life exists in the clouds of Venus. Now, again, we're, we're talking about microbial life. We're not talking about, you know, uh, Cloud City or Lando Calrissian or anything like that. But we've had some people speculate, and this is speculate, not even hypothesize, not even theorize, just like, oh, you know, b bacteria do absorb at ultraviolet wavelengths. Maybe these are bacteria. Uh, on, in the atmosphere of Venus. Completely a speculation, but an interesting one nonetheless. So there are, one of the cool things about this result isn't that we found life, but that it is encouraging us to go back to Venus and look and learn more. Mars gets all the attention. So <laughs> a lot of missions to Mars, as you know, we had one just launched not too long ago, but there are a bevy of new missions coming out to go to Venus and hopefully we'll learn whether or not those signals, whether that phosphine is an indicator of life. Now, we have been to Venus's surface before, but the spacecraft, as I mentioned, the, the surface conditions are so poor that spacecraft did not last very long there. So the point is, you're not going to find Tannhäuser on Venus. Uh, when he goes to Venusburg, we are not talking about this, because if he did go to Venusburg, he would be crushed like a tin can, and then the acid would eat away at him, and, and uh, yeah, he would die pretty handily. And that would be the end of Tannhäuser, no romantic affair with Venus. So clearly, when we talk about Venusberg, we're talking about something else. It's more of a, an ethereal realm, a symbolic realm. And there are reasons why that makes sense to us who have drawn symbolism and mythological meaning in the sky throughout all of human history. 
So I want to take a little moment to talk about that because this is really where the link comes in. There's something more uh, fundamental and even transcendental going on that links opera to and music to astrophysics. And that is that the motions of the sky and the motions in music both give us a sense of time. They both divide up what, what is otherwise a void of time, an unmarked expanse of time, and give it meaning, give it repetition, give it a beat, if you will. So I have been taking this wonderful music theory class with Russell Steinberg, who's recently talked about the pulse, that the pulse is so natural to us. We hear our heartbeat, we breathe. The idea that there is a repetition that gives us a way to mark time, whether it's measure bars on a, on a score, or it's the cycle of a planet as it circles the sun. It's a way of coming to terms with the flow of time. And because of that, it gives a direction to time. Because we can measure it, we now can see that there is a flow to, of time. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that gives us the arc of story. If we stories unfold in time, Music unfolds in time. I know that probably seems self-evident, but time is not really necessarily something that we should take for granted as just being there and ticking away. Time is actually quite an abstract concept, even for physicists, and deserves a little bit of a deeper analysis. Both, and this is really what I want to get to, draw on the laws of physics to set those cosmic metronomes. For planets, it's gravity pulling on rocks, specks of material of rock and dust and gas planets and pulling them in a way that where planets orbit. For music, of course, it's uh, vibrations in air set up by a, spring, a string or a, a, a reed or something like that. And it's driven by the ways in which sound moves through the fluid environment of an atmosphere. So both of them are driven by physics and are ways for us to understand and get a peek at the inner workings of some of the most fundamental aspects of nature. It's not at all surprising that as humans have in their quest to understand nature and to understand God, that there is a sense of revealing the secrets of God, revealing the secrets of the universe by exploring the realms of music and by exploring the realms of the heavens. And we saw this certainly in the Middle Ages with the music of the spheres. The Pythagoreans did both at the same time. So there is a really a deep concept here that marries music and physics. So with that, I would like to take a moment to share with you some of the rhythms that we look at and some of the ways in which the universe marks a beat. And the first and obvious one is the sun rises and sets every day, crosses the sky, stars do the same at night, and it moves north and south throughout the course of the year. And that, in fact, is what defines a year. And then, of course, while it's doing that, while it's moving north and south, as the earth goes around the sun, we see the sun projected in different constellations. And so that gives us that sense of movement through the course of the year. Both the north and south movement, we know it well during summer and winter. Very straightforward. We live with it all the time. But you can imagine, especially if you didn't know much about the model of the solar system and you were just kind of interested in when to harvest and when to go fishing and when, when the animals are going to migrate, you really wanted to pay attention to the sky 
and its rhythms and understand the influence that they had on your life. The same thing for the moon. Moons, the full moon leads to higher tides. The moon is tied to tides. So it is not surprising at all that our ancestors thought that the movement of the important lights in the sky translated to important aspects of life on earth and life in their society. All of them had a story associated of a cycle, a cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. And so it's, it's kind of woven in to our sense of time societally that there is a story of birth and death. The sun sets its death. When the sun comes up, it's rebirth. And so much of the mythology of the sun going to the underworld and, and so forth, uh, you're familiar with the lad, lad I'm, of that, I'm certain, are, are the stories that we told about the sky and those phenomena. So there's a real clockwork that goes on. And, and that's been, you know, really the sort of the basis of our desire to measure how the planets might move. If you think that the sun and moon have movements that are related to our life, it makes sense that so would the planets and people sought what those connections are. So with that, since you have the evening star and the morning star, those are other names for Venus when it's showing up in the evening or showing up in the morning, it has part of its story also of association with death and with giving and leaving and in the morning of arriving and receiving and of course, birth and rebirth. So it's natural and I would put to uh, Maestro Kalman and look forward to hearing his thoughts about this, that there is a really, uh, there is an association with duality and a resolution of duality as well between sacred and sensual, artistic, logical, you can see here for yourself, good and evil, masculine, feminine, the list goes on and on. I had to just stop it because I had been making those of you, how many, du any duality you can think of. And the hidden message of, of Venus is that they're one and the same. The evening star and the morning star are the same planet. It's Venus just showing its different face at different times because of its, its inner nature. Now, I mentioned earlier that you know, the sun and the moon are the brightest. Those have cycles of birth, life, death, and rebirth. It's not surprising then that Venus might be associated with love and the next bright one in the sky, Mars associated with war and death. So these are you know, just archetypal images in our psyches and reflected in the storytelling and certainly in the way Wagner addressed the feminine forces of love in Tannhäuser. More contemporary writers now talk about this as the heroine's journey. I think watching Tannhäuser, we know we're seeing the hero's journey, but as I say, contemporary writers these days, there are there's a body of thought that takes the cycles of Venus to explore the heroine's journey through coming out into strength, going through shadow, coming back and disappearing again. Um, there's more to say on that if we like. But with that, I will leave it here to ask the question, what is the nature of the sacred feminine and the carnal feminine? Does Wagner resolve them in the opera? Does he have more tricks up his sleeve to help us understand this? These are the kinds of questions that I am looking forward to hearing more about from Maestro Kalman. So with that, I will hand it back to you. And I hope that gives us a little bit of an insight to some of the magic of Venus in the sky. Dr. Danley, thank you for that 
great talk and you gave me some ideas and that's interesting to hear them reflected in, uh, well, your ideas with some of, I think, Wagner's ideas and we'll we'll go into that. Tannhäuser was a wonderful problem for Wagner. He wrote it in 1845 as one of the earlier operas. In fact, of the nine operas that get performed, music dramas, I should say, that get performed regularly, it is the second great one, following The Flying Dutchman and preceding Lohengrin. It was uh, premiered in Dresden in 1845, and then he revised it while in Dresden. Then he came back to it almost 20 years later, 1861. He got his big chance to do an opera in Paris where he very much desperately wanted a success and to be honored. It turned out to be a mixed experience and partially because of our friend Venus and Venus Barrett. Because in Paris, it was conventional to have the ballet in the middle of the opera because the a lot of the patrons didn't want to hear the music, they wanted to see the dancing. He put the ballet in Venusburg at the beginning of the opera. They were not happy about that. So it was a mixed reception. He never went back to revise it again, but he, 20 years after that, in the year of his death, he said, you know, I still owe the world my Tannhäuser. It always bothered him. He wanted to revise it again. And well, why? And who knows, but I have my own personal theory and it has to do with Venus. Now, the full title of this opera, as it was conventional to have a second title, it's Tannhäuser or the Sängerkrieg, that is the War of the Singers. What it really is, a competition, a singing competition, a place called Bartburg. Now, this was a real place and there was such a thing as a competition in the Dark Ages or the very early Middle uh, Middle Ages. Part of the problem for Wagner was created by the fact that he really took two different stories, two different sources, and he put them together. Now, there was a story of Tannhäuser, who was a, uh, a minstrel, uh, a, a artist of that sort, and he is supposedly, he was had left society and went to Venusberg, which was a mystery mountain where Venus reigned and therefore love and particularly erotic love and sensuality reigned. And he apparently went there and became almost like a cult. He became uh, indoctrinated in this life. But at a certain point, either sated or feeling that it is not fully fulfilling, he decides to leave and he, to get forgiveness for his multiple sins, he goes to Rome and he wants the Pope to, to forgive him. The Pope doesn't do that. And this part of the story was maintained by Wagner the, until his staff should sprout branches uh, or flowers or buds. He won't be forgiven. Well, he leaves and he goes back to Venus Barrett in the original story. And when everybody finds out that he's been forgiven, they can't find him. And he presumably ends his life and story and eternity spends it in eternal punishment for having been to Venusburg. Now that's one story. Now, the other story was about the singer's competition in Wartburg. And Wagner combines these two stories and makes our 
story about this minstrel, Tannhäuser, who is loosely based on a historical character, and he puts him into the singer competition. So Tannhäuser is our central character, and his central struggle, conflict, is he cannot integrate a pure spiritual love with erotic sexual love. And in that way, he is expressing one of the great societal problems of a lot of Western civilization, certainly still alive in the 19th century when Wagner was writing, but very much a problem in the Middle Ages. And of course, this is all seen through the optic of, of a male mentality, the artist and Wagner, but also the, the artists of the time. Is the woman mother or is the woman the uh, sexual partner? And the male mentality of many of these centuries was unable to integrate these two elements and recognize the woman as both sexual and could be maternal. So it was a, it was a time when not quite men were not quite up to the task of seeing women fully as, as, as full human beings. Now, Wagner himself had a particular obsession is maybe too strong, but he portrays a story over and over. And sometimes I think of those nine operas or music dramas, and there are three introductions, the operas, they were operas then, of his youth, as many chapters of a novel that keep revisiting certain themes and certain subjects. And one of those subjects is that the, the rather tortured male protagonist cannot succeed in evolving himself out of his moral and emotional struggles without the help of a woman. And so he almost creates the woman as a redeemer and keeps her on that pedestal. She is the redemptive woman. She will bring redemptive love to our protagonist who is suffering. Now, you don't have to be a Freudian to go and say, well, is, a, is Wagner that person? Wagner suffered constantly as an outsider. He felt he was an outsider, and yet he felt he was superior because, of course, he was the possessor of a genius that is almost unsurpassed in the history of music, art, literature. And so he felt a combination of resentment because he knew he knew more, knew better. At the same time, he felt rejected and misunderstood. So that makes a perfect German 19th century hero. He's going to suffer loneliness. And then we're going to we're going to join many of the poets and many of the other composers, Schubert, Schumann, Beethoven to some degree, Brahms to another degree. We're going to see in the songs of the time the concept of this yearning, this constant yearning for some kind of redemption from oneself. And that takes the form of yearning for the woman, the redemptive woman. And that's is called Sehnsucht in German. And it's a very important concept, omnipresent in the 19th century. 
Tannhäuser is a perfect example of this. And Wagner is going to put this drama on two poles. One is the pole of eroticism and the other is the pole of spirituality, the motive of the spirituality. And it is represented by the famous Pilgrim's Chorus, which is a form of hymn. Just to remind you of the Venus motive and the Venusberg music, here's the second excerpt, also in the overture. Now we come upon another theme, which is the theme of the song of praise, the Tannhäuser will sing in the second act. So you can hear the fiery difference between that and the hymn-like character of the spiritual theme of the pilgrims. Here is now a very short fragment of Venus, the seductress, almost the maternal seductress. See you. 
Now you can hear the almost constant flames of fire and the fiery Venus. And that is, of course, the fire of erotic love, but it's also the fire, we presume, of the hell and damnation, which uh, is going to be the destiny of any sinner who does not repent. Now, the most important contribution that Tannhäuser will make and his downfall will be that having had this experience in Venusburg, he actually feels that he has experienced more than anybody else in his society because he's been in direct contact with the goddess of love. And so he cannot escape that. And when he comes back to sing in the singer's competition, he sings this song of praise, which is quoted in the overture. And of course, you'll hear it now in that context. This is the ecstatic song that he sings, but it also gets him into trouble because it offends everybody in society. But here it is. Now, with his genius, Tannhäuser, like Wagner, he hears a new music, he presents a new music, but he is condemned by society because he has dared to put thoughts and feelings into music that were not acceptable. So we're going to have, we, we have this constant problem that erotic love informs us of something, but society needs to somehow or other keep eroticism under control. And of course, that struggle has gone on century after century and continues on into our own day in various forms. So the first act belongs more to Venus. The second act belongs to Elizabeth. And the third act belongs a little bit to Elizabeth at the beginning and a very little bit of Venus at the end. She returns to try to bring Tannhäuser back to her. But Elizabeth's self-sacrifice of giving her life, broken heart, of course, this is a romantic drama. She has given her life to Tannhäuser to redeem Tannhäuser, and he is redeemed. And that is expressed at the end of the opera by the, by the return of the Pilgrim's Chorus. But what have we seen here? That have we really, have we really resolved the problem? And in Wagner's mind, yes, because uh, Tannhäuser is redeemed, and he, of course, has to also die. He dies because he is now redeemed. Now, is Wagner finished with this? Well, not at all. It's going to come back again and again in one form or the other, of this dichotomy. What do I think Wagner's dissatisfaction was some you know, 40 years after he wrote the opera? Was I think that he felt that he hadn't given Venus the equal weight that she that she represents in the struggle, he didn't give her enough real estate in the opera. Now, when he revised it for Paris, he vastly lengthened the role in the first scene. But we have a sort of an unbalanced opera where we see Venus a lot at the beginning, and she disappears until almost the last moments of the opera and then makes a brief appearance. Whereas Elizabeth has a fairly central role in the middle of the opera. I think that Wagner understood that these were two very important aspects. 
but that he hadn't given enough time to Venus. Now, that's my theory. I may be completely wrong. It is now not uncommon that the same person sings Elizabeth as sings Venus. Now, this is really, it's a very demanding and powerful challenge to any singer. But the fact is, it is a very excellent way of portraying the fact that this, these two aspects of femininity seen through the eyes of a male protagonist are one and the same. It is the same person. It is just two aspects of the personality. And having the same singer sing both of them, of course, is a wonderful way to express that. You know, uh, Faust says this, says this with one line, I paraphrased, zwei, zwei Seelen brennt in meinen Brust, two souls burn in my breast. And that's what I believe he's referring to, the, this conflict between spiritual life and erotic life, because both of these lives give us an out-of-body experience. If we give ourselves fully to eroticism, we have, perhaps only momentarily, a sense of the transcendent. Sort of the message is the spiritual life is a transcendence, but it's a more permanent transcendence, and it's one that is sustainable, whereas eroticism is not sustainable in the same manner. So I hope I have brought this together in a very, it's a very short time to explain a very, very big subject. But thank you for listening. And thank you, Dr. Danley, for sharing this with me. And I want to just say thank you, Maestro Kalman. It's my delight to be with you. And thank you so very much. I've loved being here. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.